welcome to another episode of the Symphony Podcast. Uh, my name is Bernardo Mite, and with me, as always, is Andrew Owen. Andrew Owen, of mm. course. And uh, today we're going to be talking about Paul Hindemith and his composition Symphonic Metamorphosis. <laughs> so, uh, Paul Hindemith, he was born on uh, November 16th of 1895, and he died in December 28th of 1963. He was a German composer, uh, violist, violinist, teacher, and conductor. Notable compositions include his song cycle, Das Marienleben, <laughs> of 1923. Mary's Did I say life. it right? Mary's Life. Uh, das Marienleben. Marienleben. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and the opera uh, Mathis der Mahler. Uh, of 1938. Hindemith's most popular work, of course, uh, <clears throat> both on record and in concert hall, is, is his Symphonic Metamorphosis uh, of themes by Karl Maria von Weber, written in 1943, and that's the piece, of course, we're going to be talking about today. Yeah, <laughs> it's always good to talk about some of his most important work. <laughs> and then you can go from there to his way too many sonatas. Because, um, <laughs> you know, you can write too many pieces, and you know, <laughs> these, these things happen. Uh, I mean, he, he was the kind of guy who could just write a piece. Uh, willy-nilly. If yeah. someone wanted something for this instrument, he just sort of dashed one off. Mm -hmm. um, so let's talk then a little bit about his life and career, as is our tradition here. So he was born in Hanau, near Frankfurt am Main. Uh, Hindemith was taught the, uh, the violin as a child, so he was uh, early exposed to this wacky instrument, the violin. He entered mm -hmm. Frankfurt's Hochse Conservatorium, uh, which I guess just means a high conservatory, where he studied the violin with, um, with Adolf Reibner, as well as conducting and composition with Arnold Mendelssohn and Bernard Zekels. Uh, at first, he supported himself by playing in dance bands and music comedy groups, musical comedy groups. Um, happy good times. He became a deputy leader of the Frankfurt Opera Orchestra in 1914 and was promoted to leader, uh, L-E-A-D-E-R. He was leader of the group uh, in 1917. Uh, he played second violin in the Rabner String Quartet from 1914 on for, for a while. Mm -hmm. uh, so yeah, he's, so his, his main exposure to music early on in his life is with, um, uh, with playing string instruments in these little groups. Yeah, not many musical comedy groups that we have nowadays. <laughs> yeah, you don't see a lot of those guys anymore. Yeah, um, there is one famous one from Argentina called Les, Les Luthiers. I think they're from Argentina. The Luthiers, mm -hmm. they, they basically do comedy with classical music. It's kind That's of like the only a, one I know of. <laughs> like Victor Borga used to do, I guess. Slapstick uh -huh. classical music, or Peter Schick. Yeah. 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 So Hindemith uh, was conscripted into the German army in September of 1917 and sent to join his regiment in Aslas in January of 1918. Did I say that right, Andrew? Alsace. Uh, Alsace. Like they, speak Alsace. Alsace. they speak Alsatian there. Alsace. <laughs> uh, so he, he was sent to Alsace in, in 1917, 1918. Sorry. Uh, there he was assigned to play bass drum in the regiment band and also formed a string quartet. In May of 1918, he was deployed to the front in Flanders, where he served as a sentry. Uh, his diary shows him, quote, surviving grenade attacks only by good luck, unquote. According to, uh, this is according to the New Grove Dictionary. Uh, after the ar armistice, uh, he returned to Frankfurt and the Rebner Quartet. So yeah, so in 1921 he founded the Amar Quartet, uh, playing viola as usual, and uh, extensively toured Europe. Uh, in 1922 some of his pieces were played in the International Society for Contemporary Music, uh, ISCM, a festival over in Salzburg, uh, a city well known for its salt mines. 
uh, <laughs> also happens to be the home of Mozart, mm -hmm. uh, which first brought him to the attention of an international audience. This was his first time outside of, I mean, getting a little bit of uh, recognition. Uh, the following year, he began to work as an organizer of the Donalishing uh, uh, Festival. Uh, that's a delightful word. Uh, where he programmed works by several avant-garde composers, including Anton Webern and Arnold Schoenberg, um, whom we haven't talked quite enough about yet, but we'll get yeah, more we haven't. We'll, yeah. we'll, we'll talk about Schoenberg, why not? Yes. And, uh, <laughs> in 1927, he was appointed professor at the uh, Berliner Hochschule für Musik in Berlin. Uh, so he was doing that as teaching music. Hinnemann wrote the music for Hans Richter's 1928 avant-garde film Ghosts Before Breakfast, uh, Mittag Spook, <laughs> Before Breakfast Spook, uh, Ghosts Before Breakfast. Although the score was subsequently lost and he also acted in the film. Uh, in uh, 1929 he played the solo part in the premiere of William Walton's Viola Concerto after uh, Lionel Turtis, for whom it was written, turned it down. So yes, William Walton has, uh, I guess that should be William Walton's big claim to fame, is that his viola concerto was premiered by Paul Hindemann. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, that's actually a big, a big viola concerto that's yeah, yeah. played a lot. Um, it's, it's kind of funny that, that Hindemith uh, is the one that, you know, premiered it. He created the role. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, William Walton. I mean, we don't talk about him very much in music history, but yes. people people do do his music. Mm -hmm. Yeah. During the 1930s, uh, Hindemith made a visit to Cairo and several visits to Ankara, where, uh, at the invitation of Mustafa Kemal Atatürk, uh, he led the task of reorganizing Turkish music education and the early efforts of the establishment of establishment of the Turkish state opera and ballet. Towards the end of the 1930s, he made several tours uh, in America as, as a viola and viola d'amore soloist, which is this instrument that really nobody talks, nobody plays anymore. It's a weird little instrument too. It's got just a, mm -hmm. just a lot of strings. Mm -hmm. uh, viola d'amore, it it's kind of like a sitar violin, mm -hmm. <laughs> sitar viola. It's got all these sympathetic strings behind mm -hmm. it. I think that's a viola d'amore, right? Yeah. It's, it's a really rich sounding instrument. It sounds, I think a little deeper than the viola. I mean, I think it's probably just another attempt to make the viola sound more like an instrument, <laughs> which is fine. You know, viola. I mean, it's an imperfectly designed instrument because it's too small for the strings, so the strings aren't as taut as they are on a cello or a violin. It should mm -hmm. be half, like right between the size of a cello and a violin. Yet it's still a little smaller, so it'll fit on your neck. Mm -hmm. So yeah. it sort of loses a lot of its timbre. So the viola d'amore, I think, kind of tries to combat that with some sympathetic strings that are mm -hmm. hidden behind. Mm -hmm. Uh, so yeah, so Hindemith's relationship to the Nazis is a complicated one and worth talking about a little bit. Uh, some condemned his music as degenerate and atita, they would say, uh, largely based on his early sexually charged opera such as Sancta Susanna. And uh, in December 1934, during a speech at the Berlin Sports Palace, uh, Germany's Minister of Propaganda, Josef Goebbels, publicly denounced Hindemith as an atonal noisemaker. And I say, if you can make the Nazis angry, gosh darn it, you've done well as a musician. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Uh, other officials working in Nazi Germany, though, uh, thought that he might provide Germany with an example of a modern German composer, as by this time he was writing music based in tonality, uh, with frequent references to folk music. The conductor uh, Wilhelm Furtwängler uh, uh, defended uh, Hindemith, uh, and he published his defense in 1934, uh, which takes precisely this line, you know, trying to uh, say that that Hindemith was uh, was an actual German composer. <laughs> Yeah. that they should, they should actually celebrate him. <laughs> yeah, why not, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> the, 
only the Russians would have learned that. So, uh, the, the controversy around his work continued throughout the 30s, with the composer falling in and out of favor with the Nazi hierarchy. Uh, he finally immigrated to Switzerland in 1938, uh, in part because his wife was of partially Jewish ancestry. Now, not everybody knows that he went to Switzerland, but apparently that's just a, a fact that everyone's supposed to know. I remember <laughs> seeing that on my um, diagnostic exam when I started my degree here. Like, apparently yeah. you're supposed to know. Like, you're supposed to. Yeah, they gave you four options: which one of these people immigrated uh, to wherever, and one of them didn't. Which one of them did not? <laughs> it's just like <laughs> you have to know everybody's biography. Anyway, yeah, he he did go to Switzerland in 1938. Uh, yeah. was not a pleasant place to be if you want to stay uh, in a happy marriage with uh, someone who is alive. <laughs> so, uh, I mean, it's an unpleasant situation. Yeah. yeah. So, in 1935, the Turkish, the Turkish government commissioned Hindemith to reorganize the, the, that country's musical education and, more specifically, to prepare material for the Universal and Turkish Polyphonic Music Education Program uh, for all related insti institutions in Turkey, uh, a feat which he accomplished to some acclaim there in, in Turkish, in, in Turkey, sorry. <laughs> so yeah, this, this development seems to have uh, been supported by the Nazi regime. It may have got him conveniently out of the way, yet at the same time he propagated a German view of musical history and education. Uh, I mean, Hindemith himself said that he was, um, that he believed he was being an ambassador for German culture. He really wanted to get Germans feeling nice in German. Uh, yeah. And Hitler wanted the same too, so it seems like they were, <laughs> he, he did okay, but could have done, yeah. I don't know, probably a little safer than, well. Yeah, so Hindemith did not stay in Turkey as long as many others. Uh, uh, nevertheless, he greatly influenced the development of Turkish musical life. The Ankara State Conservatory owes much of his efforts. In fact, Hindemith was regarded as a real master, quote-unquote, by young Turkish musicians, and he was appreciated and greatly respected. <laughs> Yeah. So in 1940, Hendemith immigrated to the United States. Uh, so he was one of the many composers who found their way to the United States uh, during mm -hmm. and after the World War. Yeah. Uh, so at the same time he, that he was codifying his musical language, his teaching and compositions began to be affected by his theories, according to critics like Ernest Sanser May, whom we've talked about. I think we've talked about him before. He's just yeah. a pretty well known. He did. A, he's Prado Soldat. He was the, mm -hmm. the guy that did that for uh, Stravinsky. Mm -hmm. uh, once in the United States, he taught primarily at Yale University, where he had such notable students as Lucas Foss, uh, Graham George, Norman De La Gioia, Mel Powell, Yehudi Weiner, um, Harold Shapiro, um, Hans Otto, uh, Ruth Schontal, uh, Leonard Saracen, and Oscar-winning film director George Roy Hill. Uh, so working at Yale, I mean, this is just a, a wacky thing that I remember hearing in a lecture back, uh, back in 09, where apparently Hindemith teaching there at Yale was a big proponent of, um, of having boards, having chalkboards on the wall that had staff lines on them. Mm -hmm. And the musicology person uh, there at Yale did not want the lines. He wanted the boards to be nice and clean. Um, of course, they wanted to keep Paul there, and they wanted to keep the... Uh, the uh, musicologist there, so they wound up building two music buildings. Uh, so that one would have boards and would, that's what they say. I don't know if that's true. So if you ever go to Yale and wonder why there are two music buildings, I think that might be the reason. I could be wrong. I've not that's never been never been to Yale. Yeah, apparently, that's interesting. apparently Hindemith had something to do with that. <laughs> so so during this time he also gave the uh, Charles Eliot and uh, uh, Norton lectures at Harvard from which the book A Composer's World was extracted. 
uh, Hindemith uh, wrote, had that book done in 1952. Hindemith had a long friendship with Erich Katz, whose own compositions were influenced by him. So he, he had a lot of influence there, mostly with people that people have never heard of, but uh, that's okay. Uh, Norman De La Joe, it was literally the only it's name I recognize on that list. <laughs> exactly. I was about to tell you exactly the same thing, that, <laughs> that De, La, De La Joya is the only one that I know. And I still list. couldn't tell you anything that De La Joya has ever written. I'm sure other people can. I, just, I don't <laughs> yeah, even know it, the guy's work. Yeah, it's no the, only, the only name I recognize. Actually. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So Hindemith became an American citizen in 1946, but he returned to Europe in 1953, living in Zurich and uh, teaching at the, at the university there. Towards the end of his, his life, he began to conduct more and made numerous recordings, mostly of his own music, of course. <laughs> oh, yes. So, uh, anonymous critic writing in Opera magazine in 1954, having attended the performance of Hindemith's Neues vom Tage, noted that uh, Mr. Hindemith is no virtuoso conductor, but he does possess an extraordinary knack of making performers understand how his own music is supposed to go. <laughs> Which I guess that's fine. Uh, you could say the same of Eric Whitaker, I'm sure. Uh, he was awarded the Balzan Prize in 1962, and that's um, a relatively prestigious prize. Yeah, I mean, I guess you're supposed to know how your own music goes, right? <laughs> I guess. I mean, I know if plenty of people are really bad at their own music. Don't get me wrong. But <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. Yeah. So after a prolonged decline in his physical health, uh, although he composed um, almost to his death, uh, Hindemith died in Frankfurt uh, from um, pancreatitis at the age of 68. <clears throat> So now we're going to talk a little, a little bit about his style, his music. Hindemith is among um, the most significant German composers of his, of his time. His early works are in a late romantic idiom, and he later produced expressionist works rather in, in the style of early Arnold Schoenberg uh, before de developing a leaner, contrapuntally complex style in the 1920s. Uh, this style has been described as neoclassical, but it is very different from the works of Igor Stravinsky labeled uh, with that term, uh, owing more to the contrapuntal langu language of Johann Sebastian Bach and Mark, M Max Reger than the classical clarity of Mozart. Yeah. So, you know, when, when we talk about neoclassicism, neo neo we, we usually think of Stravinsky, but here Hindemith kind of wrote in a, in a style similar to it, but not in the style of Mozart, more in the style of Bach. <laughs> yeah, kind of neoclassical. His music can be kind of difficult to enjoy on the first listen. It takes some Definitely. getting used to. You know. Yeah. So the new style can be heard in the in a series of works called Kammer music or chamber music from 1922 to 27. Each of these pieces is written for a different small instrumental ensemble. Many of them very unusual. Uh, Kammer music number six, for example, is a concerto for the viola d'amore. Uh, an instrument uh, really hasn't been wide, had not been in wide use since the Baroque period, and uh, still has not been used since Hindemith yeah. uh, tried to propose, uh, try to get it out there. Mm -hmm. um, he continued to write for unusual groups throughout his life. Uh, he did produce a trio for viola, hecklephone, and piano. Uh, now, if you if you think you know all of the instruments of the orchestra, uh, the hecklephone still is kind of uh, a relatively obscure instrument. Hecklephone is just a uh, it's a it's a very large English horn. It's a very large oboe. Mm. So instead of being an oboe, which is you know about yay big, you know about the big, about you know less than a yard long, English horn's a little longer. The yeah. the um, hecklephone is to the floor. Mm -hmm. um, and it has a big bulb at the end of it. A really strange instrument, but it has the range of a bassoon, but the timbre of an oboe. Really lovely mm -hmm. instrument. Mm -hmm. uh, he wrote seven trios for three uh, troutoniums. In 1930, as a sonata for double bass and a concerto for trumpet, bassoon, and strings, uh, both in 49. 
for example. He was he was fascinated by just giving the other unappreciated instruments just a little more yeah, um, okay. attention, which is nice. Yeah. You know, you learn. You spend all the time learning the instrument. It doesn't hurt to uh, uh, to try it out. The Troutonium, <laughs> monophonic electronic instrument, invented uh, 1929 uh, in in Berlin. So it was a German instrument. Yeah. I don't know this instrument at all. I'm looking it up. Yeah, I mean, so as soon as it was invented, basically, he wrote for it. <laughs> it's like, what a weird-looking thing. It's very strange, just one pitch at a time. I guess it's kind of like a theremin, but a little more, less antenna-y. That's cool. I don't know. Wacky. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, yeah, he wrote for that. <laughs> yeah, so around the 1930s, Hindemith began to write less for the chamber groups and more for large orchestral forces. Uh, between 1933 and 1935, Hindemith wrote his opera Mathis der Mahler, uh, based on the life of the painter Matthias uh, Grunwald. And uh, this opera is rarely staged, though a well-known production by the New York City Opera in 1995 was an exception. Uh, it combines the neoclassicism of earlier works with folk song. As a prelim preliminary stage to the composing of this opera, Hindemith wrote a purely instrumental symphony, also called Mathis der Mother, uh, which is one of his most frequently performed works. In the opera, some portions of the, of the symphony appear as instrumental interludes, others were elaborated in vocal scenes. <clears throat> yeah. Hindemith wrote uh, a piece called uh, Music for Youth, uh, German Gebrauchsmusik, mm -hmm. Gebrauchsmusik, uh, compositions intended to have a social or political purpose, and sometimes written to be played by amateurs. Mm -hmm. uh, the concept was inspired by Bertolt Brecht. Uh, uh, an example of this is his trauer music, his funeral music, uh, mm -hmm. written in January of thirty-six. Hindemith was preparing the, the London premiere of Die Schwan, uh, Die Schwan und Reva, uh, when he heard news of the death of George V. He quickly wrote this piece for solo viola and string orchestra in tribute to the late king, and the premiere was given that same evening, the day after the king's death. Just to give you an example of Hindemith's speed. Yeah, exactly. That's pretty outrageous. I mean, that's amazing. Yeah. Uh, so other examples of Hindemith's Kabbalah's music include uh, the Plöne uh, Musiktage, a series of pieces designated, designed for uh, a day of community music making open uh, to all inhabitants of the city of Plön, uh, culminating in an evening concert by gymnasium students and teachers. I mean, that, that is pure use. I never wrote a piece for this. Um, a scherzo for viola and cello, and cello written in 34, uh, which was written in several hours during a series of recording sessions as a filler for an unexpected blank slide blank side of a 78 RPM album and recorded immediately upon its completion. I mean, this, mm -hmm. this guy worked quick. He just polished one yeah. of these things off. Uh, Wir bauen eine Stadt. We're building a city, which was an opera for eight-year-olds. Uh, just, I mean, Hindemith, what a wacky guy. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you, can't, you can't make this stuff up. We're yeah. building Wir bauen eine Stadt. But, uh, he wrote lots of music that was to be done uh, for a purpose, and, and often these pieces were not meant for posterity. Yeah, but luckily yeah. we still have them. Exactly. <laughs> so Hindemith's most popular work, uh, both on record and in the concert hall, like we said, is probably the, the it, it is the symphonic metamorphosis on themes by Karl Maria von Weber, written in 1943. It takes melodies from various works by Weber, mainly piano duets, but also one from the overture to his incidental music of Turandot, uh, and transforms and adapts them so that each movement of the piece is based on on one theme. And we're gonna talk more about it in just a second. <laughs> Yeah. In 1951, Hindemith completed his symphony in B-flat. This was scored for a concert band. Uh, it was written for the U.S. Army Band's Pershing's Own. Pershing being an important um, military figure. Those, those funny little hats that 
know, have the thing on the top and go straight back. It's called a Pershing-style cap. I think we kind of invented that. Uh, Hindemith uh, premiered it with that band on April 5th of that year. Its second performance took place under the baton of Hugh McMillan, conducting the Boulder Symphonic Band at the University of Colorado. Uh, the piece is representative of his late works, exhibiting strong contrapuntal lines throughout, and is a cornerstone of the band repertoire. So if anyone in your music department knows who Hindemith is, it's more than likely going to be your bandos. And that's perfectly <laughs> fine. And it's good that they get a real composer. Uh, <laughs> oh, oh, <laughs> that's not nice. No, so Hindemith recorded it in stereo with members of the Philharmonia Orchestra for EMI in 1956. So it was a piece that got a lot of fame. Yeah, I've played, I played it before. <laughs> yes, it's a good piece. Um, so let's talk about his musical system. Most of Hindemith's music employs a unique system that is tonal but non-diatonic. Uh, like most tonal music, it is centered on a tonic and modulates from one tonal center to another, but it uses all 12 tones freely rather than relying on a scale picked as a, as a subset of these notes. Hindemith even rewrote some of his music after developing the system. Um, one of the key features of, of this system is that he ranks all musical intervals of the 12-tone equally tempered scale from the most consonant to the most dissonant. He classifies scores in six categories on the basis of how dissonant, how dissonant they are, uh, whether or not they contain a tritone, and whether or not they clearly suggest a root or tonal center. Uh, Hindemith's philosophy also encompasses melody. Uh, he strove for melodies that do not clearly outline major or minor triads. So he kind of invented his own music uh, theory, his own system here. He did. Mm -hmm. You know, he, and that, oh, yeah, that, that's uh, why we don't know any of his melodies off the top of our head. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> None of them are in major and minor triads. But that's also why his music sounds so unique also. It is. I mean, it, it sounds... Like, like I hear a lot of it and it just sort of goes in one out and one ear out the other sometimes, <laughs> just the way it's written. If it had something <laughs> to latch on to, something to be ashamed of. I guess I just always have this, uh, have it in for equal tempered anything. Mm -hmm. uh, but that's okay. So in the late 1930s, Hendemit wrote a theoretical book, uh, The Craft of Musical Composition. Uh, volume 1, Hendemit wrote in 1937, uh, which lays out this system in great detail. He also advocated this system as a means of understanding and analyzing the harmonic structure of other music, claiming that it has a broader reach than the traditional Roman numeral approach to chords, which is an approach that's strongly tied to the diatonic scales. It works best for Bach, mm -hmm. um, Bach chorales, having to, you know, making sense of what the chords are uh, in relation to function. Mm -hmm. So in the final chapter of Book One, Hindemith seeks to illustrate the wide-ranging relevance and applicability of his system in analysis of music examples ranging from the early origins of European music to the contemporary. Uh, these analyses include an early Gregorian melody and compositions by Guillaume de Machaut, J.S. Bach, Richard Wagner, Igor Stravinsky, uh, Arnold Schoenberg, and finally a composition of his own. So he, yes, he was very fascinated in just figuring stuff out. He was a theorist as much as he was a composer. Yeah, I mean, that's that's the German mind right there. <laughs> he, he likes to make it all make sense, all fit into <laughs> exactly. a nice little neat system. Yeah. And that way you can be like Schenker. Uh, exactly. I mean, you don't, even have, you don't even have to be as racist as Schenker, you can just make <laughs> your own little theory. Yeah, I was about to tell you, I was about to mention Schenker too, that he basically did the same thing. <laughs> oh yeah. So, 
His piano works of the early 1940s, uh, Ludus Tonalis, contains 12 tone fugues in the manner of Johann Sebastian Bach, each connected by an interlude uh, during which the music moves from one key uh, of the last fugue to the key of the next one. The, uh, the order of the keys follows in the midst ranking of musical intervals around the tonal center of C. <clears throat> Yeah, so one traditional aspect of classical music that Hinnemann retains is the idea of dissonance resolving to a consonance. Uh, now granted, it's not in the traditional way of resolution, but it does resolve. It goes from dissonance to consonance, and it does end pleasantly, usually. So much of Hinnemann's music begins in a consonant territory, progresses rather smoothly into dissonance, and then resolves at the end in full consonant chords. Um, this is especially apparent in his concert music for strings and brass, uh, mm -hmm. one of his many, many works. Mm -hmm. All right. Um, so now we arrive at the piece that we're going to be talking about today, which is, of course, the Symphonic Metamorphosis on Themes by Carl Maria von Weber. And this is an orchestral work written by, of course, Paul, Paul Hindemith um, in 1943. Um, it was, it was uh, composed between 1940 and 1943. Its length is, uh, is about 20 minutes, so it's a quick, it's a very quick piece. Uh, it's orchestrated for uh, a piccolo, two flutes, two oboes, an English horn, two clarinets, a bass clarinet, two bassoons, a contrabassoon, four horns, two trumpets, three trombones, a tuba, a timpani, um, and uh, extensive percussion section here, bass drums, chimes, cymbals, glockenspiel, small cymbals, small gong, snare drum, uh, tambourine tenor drum, tom-tom uh, triangle, and of course strings. Yeah, I just throw so, some strings in there, why not? <laughs> yeah, a, a big percussion section. I mean, yeah. a lot of percussion instruments. Mm -hmm. All of the orchestra, <laughs> all the instruments are in it, uh, pretty much, except for the heckelphone, of course. Sorry, heckelphonists. <laughs> heckelphonists. Um, so Hindemith's symphonic metamorphosis on themes of Karl Maria von Weber began life in, an er in the early, uh, early year 1940, early part of the year, when Hindemith first took up residence in the United States after several years of public and private jousting with the Nazi government in his native Germany. So the Nazis, uh, like we said, uh, officially called his music degenerate, although they there may have been, they may have been responding to his private but hardly secret expressions of detestation regarding their policies. So they, uh, there was sort of a love-hate relationship with Hindemith uh, and the Nazis. I think mostly hate, but he did find his way out, yeah. uh, out of the Germans, uh, Germany's less pleasant uh, history. Mm -hmm. So uh, Hindemith sketched a, a series of movements based on themes by Weber. Uh, to be used in a ballet for a dance company run by uh, Leonid Massinet, uh, who had already collaborated with Hindemith on the ballet Noblissima Vision. Uh, the project uh, died when Hindemith and Massin had one too many artistic differences, uh, not to put too fine a point on it, but um, Massinet uh, had the staging ideas which would have used the backdrops by Salvador Dali, and these were kind of weird for Hindemith. And um, Massine also th uh, thought that Hindemith's score was too personal, or whatever that means. So, in 1943, Hindemith uh, redid the music into the met Metamorphosis, uh, in the process turning into, into a splashy, colorful orchestral piece of the sort that American audiences in particular seem to like. It was an immediate success when it was premiered by Arthur Rodisky uh, and the New York Philharmonic in January of 1944, and it has remained perhaps Hindemith's most popular work, even if critics often feel compelled to denigrate it. <laughs> oh yes, it's so easy to denigrate anything by Hindemith, right? <laughs> uh, so Weber uh, was, uh, Karl Maria von, uh, Karl Maria von Weber uh, was uh, very early on, 1786 to 1826, sort of 
the Beethoven Schubert era. Mm -hmm. uh, he was an important figure in the development of German opera. He was very important influence. He was a very important influence on Romanticism. Uh, he retained an importance among later composers that would scarcely guess from the limited exposure that he gets at modern concert halls. Uh, I mean, honestly, a lot of people don't know Weber's music that well these days, despite the fact that everyone knew his music back then. It's sort of, uh, yeah. sort of a, a, a Daniel Aubert figure, like you know, forgotten. Like you know about Aubert if you're if you study French grand opera in the early 19th century. But otherwise, you're not going to know who he is. Yeah. But Weber, Weber has a little more fame. People do know his stuff. Victor Borga used to use Weber's music occasionally. He used to call him Carl, uh, Carl and his sister Maria. Because uh, <laughs> he has Maria. He's a male. Why does he have Maria in his name? It's perfectly fine. <laughs> so, anyway, the themes uh, Hinnemann used are from some of Weber's most obscure works. So, that makes it even better. Obscure composers, most obscure works. Uh, mm -hmm. And it came to Hinnemann's attention because they could all be found in one volume of piano duets that he owned. Um, mm -hmm. So, like we said, Hinnemann was a very practical man. Uh, Hinnemann not only retained all but one of the themes almost exactly as Fabern wrote them, but also preserved much of the formal structure of the pieces as well, so that it is possible to follow the general outlines of Hinnemann's score while listening to Weber's music, or vice versa, mm -hmm. and have a pretty good idea of what's going on. So, so, it, so Hindemith alters nearly everything else. He makes radical changes to the harmony, as to the music, both vertically, that is, with different harmonies and new counter melodies, and horizontally. So he extends phrases or entire sections. He does new and fun things, kind of like what Stravinsky did with Pulcinella mm -hmm. uh, in his brand of neoclassicism. Yeah. Uh, the, surpri the surprising thing is that Hindemith's end, end product, while staying so close to Weber, sounds so li little like the original. For example, in the first movement, based on the fourth uh, of eight piano duets, Opus 60, uh, there are a few hints of the 19th century aside from the middle section theme given to the oboe. This is followed by one of Hindemith's uh, niftier touches. Uh, when the principal theme returns in the violas and clarinets, he has the flute play in parallel an octave and in, in a fifth higher, and the piccolo in parallel two octaves and a third higher. Um, they act much like uh, mixture stops on an organ and make the orchestra so sound more like a little, um, a little like a, a calliope. Um, a calliope. So Calliope, yeah, Calliope, this uh, steam, you know, the steam organ-looking instrument. <laughs> if you ever want to visit New Orleans, you can have a good old Calliope oh, yeah. experience. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, that, that Calliope is very out of tune. <laughs> Beautifully out of tune, yes. I mean, steam, the, the, the faster the steam goes through it, it sort of bends the pitch a little bit. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's funny. <laughs> and it's loud, it's so loud. It just covers the whole city of New Orleans. Yeah. It's, it's, it's great. It's, it's a great part of the city, though. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. So, so this, this, this symphony, the Symphonic Metamorphosis, is in four moments. You have an allegro, an scherzo, an lantino, and a marsh. <laughs> marsh. Uh, so uh, the first, third, and fourth movements of the Symphonic Metamorphosis are excerpted from several of Weber's piano duets, as I mentioned earlier. The second movement borrows from incidental music Weber composed for Schiller's translation of Turandot. Uh, within each movement, we can hear Weber's, origi Weber's, ori not Weber, Weber's original music, uh, transformed into Hindemith's own distinctive voice. Uh, Hindemith's treatment is uh, by turns playful and tender, exuberant and restrained. His sense of humor can be heard in his witty use of wind instruments and brasses in the first movement, uh, a raucous polka. The opening movement is based on the fourth of Weber's uh, eight pieces, Opus 64 piano duet. Weber described it as uh, all uh, ongarese, 
all'ongarese. Uh, and, in, and indeed, there is an unmistakable Hungarian flavor uh, to the fiery first theme, that it means like a Hungarian, all'ongarese. Mm -hmm. uh, the second theme is a proclamation from the brass and choral style, which is later wittily developed in inverted form by various woodwind instruments, beginning with the oboe and extending from the piccolo down to the contrabassoon. Mm -hmm. Uh, the second movement is based on Weber's incidental music to Schiller's adaptation of Turandot, the, the same uh, Carlo Gossi fantasy uh, about China that Puccini used uh, for his 1926 opera. Um, Weber took uh, his melody from Jean Jacques Rousseau's 1787's Dictionary de Musique. Uh, Rousseau had gotten it from a sinologist, but uh, as, as, per, as perceptive a musicology as, as he was a philosopher, uh, cautioned that it had likely been adapted to Western ears in the transmission and its authenticity was therefore suspect. It was nonetheless as close as Weber was going to get to a real Chinese melody, and he used it almost exclusively, exclusively uh, in five of the six numbers he wrote for the play. Uh, it is uh, the only tune that Hindemith uh, alters significantly, but uh, his insistent repetition of the tune is uh, molded on Weber's Turandot Overture. Uh, Hindemith repeats it eight times in different settings, uh, building to a splashy climax. The brass uh, then takes a syncopating variant of the theme and turns it into a fugue. <laughs> So then a quiet pastoral piece in ternary form follows. Its outer, session, uh, its outer sections feature the solo clarinet singing a lyrical theme based on the second of Weber's piano duet pieces from Opus 10. Uh, the central portion consists of a particularly rich, even sensuous theme that might easily serve as the basis for a vocalization as well. So you could imagine that this is something a person could sing. Uh, the reprise of the clarinet theme is richly embroidered by a continuous fine tracery in the flute. Uh, yeah, this this solo, um, it's this is this is a, fl a huge flute solo that is in a lot of auditions. So if you're a flute player, you need to know this this flute solo. I have learn it now. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 complicated, um, and I've had the good fortune of playing it before. So <laughs> for the concluding march, uh, march uh, based on Weber's uh, Opus 60, number seven. Um, Hindemith used a theme originally intended by Weber as a funeral march, dressing it up first uh, with eerie, ghostly effects and colors, then transforming it, in, uh, transforming it into something nobly tragic. The mood suddenly changes as the horns announces a joyous new theme against uh, skittering woodwinds. Uh, the death theme momentarily clouds the picture again, but Hindemith concludes uh, his symphonic metamorphosis with a spectacular display of orchestral brilliance based on a horn quartet motif. The horn calls implicit uh, in Weber's trio section are made explicit in Hindemith's version and become the basis of, the, of this requisite big finish. So, it ends happy. <laughs> Yay! Yeah, that's, that's uh, again more of uh, Hindemith's approach to harmony start. Consonant, get dissonant, and then end consonant. Consonant, yeah. yeah, yeah sort yeah, of yeah. His, his version of a ternary or a sonata or a hero's journey. Ternary, yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Anything else you want to say about Hindemith? Well, there's not a whole lot to say about Hindemith outside of uh, what we've said already. I think that he's, uh, you know, he, he's underappreciated in the musicological mm -hmm. world, but he's, uh, he's still championed by, by band people. And, yeah. Uh, and by violists and hecklephonists and uh, viola de morists and yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's important to have this available to people. Now he, he's very good. I remember seeing. Uh, I was telling you about this before we were recording the uh, 
an article of someone, it's a fake article from sort of an onion-like thing talking about coming across another Hindemith sonata. This guy wrote so many sonatas, they just, they just keep popping up out of nowhere. That's yeah. just like everything else here. No, but, uh, <laughs> but it's, it's funny. It, it's, uh, Hindemith is still in uh, Paul Hindemith, or Hindemith, uh, has always uh, has maintained his presence in, uh, in musical discourse, and people still do his music a lot. Really cool guy. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I mean, like, it's our tradition too. It's a, it's a very small piece, so it's a small podcast too. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. All right. All right, well, uh, of course, thank you so much for listening again. Um, if you want to email us and have any questions, you can, uh, of course, email us at symphonypodcast.gmail.com. Um, you can, of course, find us on iTunes, and you can find us on YouTube. And, of course, if you have a podcast, a podcast app on your phone, you can just su- subscribe to our Symphony Podcast. And, of course, until next time, thank you for listening. Thank you for listening. <laughs> Bye-bye. Yay! <laughs> <laughs> That's another one in the bag. Another one done. I'll polish them off like a hand of it, so no. All right.